All right, good. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Leadership Lounge. It's great to have you join us. And uh, it's really great to have you join us because we're here at the beginning of a new series. Uh, and our new series, we're just going to be focusing on the leaders rather than the topic themselves. Uh, and so today's Leadership Lounge uh, is going to be a real insight to our guest today. And I'd like to welcome with us uh, Mary Myatt, uh, who is the founder of Myatt & Co. Uh, and we're hopefully going to get a real insight into the person, their experiences, and how it's kind of shaped uh, their leadership. So uh, welcome, Mary, to the Leadership Lounge. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Colin. Uh, delighted to join your Leadership Lounge. Great stuff. Yeah, well, and Mary, uh, I, we've obviously, we do a little bit of uh, checking out on the internet. We find out a bit, and obviously I know a bit about you anyway, Mary, just from the work that you do. So for our listeners, Mary's a, an education advisor, a writer, a speaker, uh, and she curates, uh, she's created Myas & Co, where she works with colleagues to develop thoughtful work on the curriculum and wider school improvement. Uh, Mary trained as an RE teacher. So she's a former local authority advisor and inspector. Uh, and she draws on her work with pupils, teachers and leaders and writes uh, and speaks about learning, leadership and the curriculum. That sounds very grand, doesn't it, Mary? It sounds like something of a TV programme where we're about to introduce uh, an award for you. It was just a very pragmatic summary of, of, what, of what I do. And it's all grounded, really, in talking to colleagues and talking to children. And the rest just emerges from that. Yeah. 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 And Mary, I've loved I've loved listening to you when I've heard you speak. I've loved reading uh, some of your work that I've read. Um, and to me, it just brings a, a freshness uh, into the curriculum and into leadership and working with uh, children and young people and, and teachers. Um, so we just want to explore a little bit about your journey, uh, your journey in life and your journey into leadership. And so you were an education advisor, uh, Mary. So what got you into education as a career and and why RE in particular, which was your starting point? Yes. So, um, yes. So RE, uh, I came into that through uh, my degree, which was uh, classics. And part of that, I did Greek philosophy. And so I've got a long standing interest in philosophy. And so I came into the RE route via that. Um, so my specialism is secondary religious education. Um, I taught in London and Cambridge, but for the most part of my career, I was just outside Ipswich in Suffolk. And um, I've taught RE, but also some English, some history, a little bit of maths, some PSHE and some Latin at lunchtime. And um, after I'd done that, I then joined the local authority, general school improvement work, and um, uh, but then also with responsibility for religious education. In terms of what brought me in to this profession, um, I'm one of six siblings. My parents were both teachers, and out of the six of us, four of us have ended up in education. So six out of the eight um, have, been, have been in education. Um, but I did do a few things before. Um, so I didn't come in until I was in my 30s. Um, but I was absolutely blessed to uh, be working um, in, in Suffolk early on in my career, where I had the most amazing support from um, the local authority advisor for religious education, not just in terms of the subject and the stuff that needs to be taught, but in terms of ways of working, of pedagogy, of really deep thinking. So, um, yeah, that, that's the reason why. And that's how I got started. Really, and with, as I say, this wonderful support from Jeff Hundleby. Yeah. So, so there's a sense then where your early influences uh, through family was around education. Uh, and, and something about that must have stuck. As you say, you kind of took a you, you did some other things before going in to that profession but there was something about it that captured you and then you had some early experiences working with some people that that kind of sparked your 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 kind of love of of wider curriculum as well as as uh, as re um I, i'm intrigued by people i think one of the things since i've uh moved out of being a head teacher and 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 run everyday leader I find people fascinating, um, just watching human behavior, watching and really understanding people's story as well as to where they've come from. And, and you kind of indicated that for you, you know, family had a, a love of education, which is why, yeah, as you say, six out of the eight of those family members are, are involved. So it's really exciting. 
So, yeah, I just kind of wonder if we took a step further back, uh, your kind of childhood Mary story and how did that shape the adult story and your, your kind of wanting to make a difference to children, young people and people in schools? Is there anything from your, your childhood that fed into that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I was born in Wimbledon and then we moved to East Grinstead in Sussex and then to uh, South Croydon uh, when I didn't know I must have been about uh, eight, I suppose. And so, um, you know, I was very conscious of my mother wasn't working then, but the schools my father was working in in East Grinstead and the tales he would tell of what people got up to. Uh, students got up to it was always with a great sense of um wry amusement at uh just some of the really funny things that that people did but um he was a great scholar he was an english specialist and um so he had a big intellectual influence on me um and then um i also had a fantastic aunt um who also uh trained to be a teacher um after an early uh, as a second career and she was a big influence on me as well, not just in terms of her enjoyment of teaching, she was in primary, but in terms of her uh, curiosity and fascination about the world and people mm. uh, as individuals. And that had a big impression on me as a child and I can still feel it now. It's like, isn't it just remarkable? We're here at all. And, um, oh, I wonder what's beyond those, beyond the galaxy. And of course, that's all pertinent now with the news, isn't it? Uh, the wonderful uh, pictures that are coming up. So I think, um, yeah, I think I had some seminal influences on me, really, from my family, from my family context, mostly. Yeah. 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 And it's interesting you're talking about curiosity, which, of course, is key for, for learning and, and education. Uh, and I see that coming through in the things you've talked about in encouraging teachers to be curious in terms of the curriculum for us to, to just almost ask some of those questions around what it could really look like, isn't it? So, yeah, fascinating that it came through. It's interesting you saying just around one of the things that lured you in some ways into education was the stories that your your dad told you. I, I, I gave a little kind of chuckle, uh, I think both physically and inside, about the number of stories. Sometimes you come home and you do tell your family about kind of what's happened and sometimes they're almost disbel you know, they're almost unbelievable aren't they in terms of what no surely that that wouldn't have happened I mean are there any kind of funny moments you've experienced in education over the years that you still look back on and have a little bit of a chuckle oh yeah I mean lo loads of them but I, I will just recount one from pretty early on in my career I think I was uh yeah I wasn't long trained and um I'd had a I'd had a, a class I think there were year nine and they had been they had been a bit lively. So I've mentioned it to the head of humanities. They've been a bit lively, and so they were just keeping an eye out. And um, they just came in at the end of the lesson with another colleague. They, the crew had all gone. The nines had all gone by this stage. And I said, Yeah, I think that went. I think that went okay. We got some learning done. Uh, they were more on board rather than trying to muck about. <laughs> so I turned around and looked up. There were a load of, in Suffolk, they're called soggies. They, they'd flipped up pieces of chewed up <laughs> on the ceiling and they were slowly falling off. I said, oh, forget that. <laughs> they weren't that good after all. <laughs> I hadn't noticed. Um, and then another time when I was taking a group of um, year eights to Canterbury Cathedral um, by coach when we did a, we did a, we did a unit on pilgrimage. It was always great. It was a highlight of, of one of the highlights of my career and uh, of my time there. And uh, uh, so one child was sick, uh, was sick uh, on the coach and the coach driver was great. And we, we got it sorted out and put, put their sicky uh, top, their, um, their sort of sweatshirt into a plastic bag. And then we all went off happily to look at, the child had recovered to look at Canterbury Cathedral and various other things in Canterbury. And then we got back on the coach and uh, the child couldn't find the, sit back with, with their top in it and the um the bus driver said oh dear I've, I've chucked it in the bin <laughs> and it's huge you know there's huge municipal bins <laughs> I had to I had to go and fish it out 
And I was so teased by the rest of the staff and the kids because it was right at the bottom. Oh, no. And I was wearing either cream or white trousers. <laughs> All you could see was my this my bum over the side. <laughs> and um, anyway, so you, 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 you know, you, you earn brownie points for that sort of thing, even if it's humiliating in the moment we had a. Yeah. So, yeah, it was great fun. Yeah, and probably uh, that child is still remembering and recounting. I remember Mrs. Myatt, who who went in the bin looking for my my sticky sweatshirt. Um, yeah, and actually, although of course we're chuckling now, aren't we, Mary? I'm sure it wasn't particularly delightful for you at the time, but but probably reflects again uh, what uh, you know I'm picking up needs to be at the heart of not only when we work with children, but when we work with with people. The heart of leadership: being prepared to get our cream trousers mucky in the bin uh just yeah getting our hands metaphorically and and literally getting our hands a bit dirty sometimes isn't it and and so in some ways you know th- this moves nicely into into my nice question the next question just around uh, the kind of challenges of leadership i think again one of the things i've reflected on is that quite often it's the challenges that's like a the furnace of life that kind of refines and shapes us as people and as leaders um and, you know, we, we, you've got some funny stories there. We've heard your journey that, that, that you kind of where it sparks from and, and how you, you started off in RE, but wider curriculum. Um, but what has the journey been like for you? Has it, has it always been easy or have there been sort of challenges that, and, that have refined uh, your story? And, and if so, kind of how have you worked through those? How have you benefited from those? Yeah, so... You know, it wouldn't be a true and honest life if there weren't challenges or, you know, we'd be denying them. Mm. Um, I, I, I'm absolutely clear that the minute I first stood in front of a class on my first teaching practice, I had a deep sense. It, it filled my whole being. This is what I'm meant to be doing. Mm. And I just looked at that class and I thought, yeah, <laughs> I love you in the metaphorical sense. First time I met them, I just looked at them. I thought, yeah, this is what I'm meant to be doing. Heaven knows what they thought of me, but that was a really profound moment for me, particularly having done you know, a few other things. I thought, yeah, this is this is what this is this is what I'm meant to be doing. Mm. I think if you have that deep sense of deep personal and professional joy at doing something, um, it does help to provide a bit of a red a bedrock against you know the inevitable uh, knocks that come. Mm. Um, so I think. What I've learned from the setbacks or people pushing back against what I'm trying to do or uh, just things not going as well as I'd like is to um, remind myself of that, of that uh, deep purpose that allows me to kind of overcome the difficult things. Yeah. I think the other thing to play into that is if, if you are, what I found is if I am getting some pushback or something that I've been trying to move forward, then to pause and, and really, really listen in a deep sense, well, what, what are the barriers here? What, what am I missing? What are my blind spots? Mm. Um, and I would say in terms of career setbacks is that I haven't always got the posts I've gone for. But actually, if you talk to any, anyone, Jill, Jill Berry is great on this. I think she went for quite a few headships. Uh, or, or at one point in her career, she went for quite a few until she arrived on this, this notion of keeping going. Mm. And the and Jane and um, she's absolutely Jill is absolutely wonderful at coaching and mentoring other colleagues who are facing these barriers because in the moment it feels it feels horrid. Yeah. They don't want me, but actually it's not that. What I was able to reflect on pretty early on is that those organizations or those settings know who they need Mm. and um i can only do the best i can and if actually it's not quite the right fit that's their choice that's their judgment so i always try to distance myself from anything uh, to make it you know so that it doesn't feel personal because i know that it's not personal even if it can feel like at at the time so i try Mm. to move beyond that and then when i've looked back and reflected on what happened after those roles I mean um there were probably about three or four and they were you know quite painful at the time I mean I don't mean deeply painful I mean just a bit annoying (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean like a huge loss um actually more appropriate things came up not long afterwards Mm. and um this might sound a bit new agey but I've I've seen it so many times both in myself and for other people is that if you kind of 
put your best efforts into whatever it is. In this example, you know, applying for roles, mm. then just have to let it be because you can't control the final outcome. But you can at least say at the end of it, I did my best. But then what I've noticed, if you are genuinely putting your gifts out into the world, um, the world has a way of letting you know what you're meant to be doing. I, I just keep seeing this over and over again. And so when I've reflected back, I think, you know, I wasn't meant to be doing that because I was meant to be doing this other thing that turned up a few months later. Yeah. Um, so to, to try not to over, over control things. And then um, when people have been mean, personally mean, I just think, I just feel sorry for them because um, I don't intentionally set out to hurt other people, but I accept sometimes my phrases might. And so I always want to know if that's happened, if I can see from their body language or by reflection. And I always get back to them and say, hey, that wasn't what was intended. And I'm really yeah. sorry about your feelings because <laughs> we always want to debate ideas rather than make it personal. Yeah. Um, but when that's happened to me, I just think, well, you... Um, you're either deliberately misunderstanding or um, you don't understand, in which case that's a point for me to come at it in a slightly different way. But if it feels personal, I just think, well, why would you do that to someone else? And I just kind of shrug it off and think, oh, you must, must be sad about something. So I tend to distance negative stuff. Uh, that might be a good thing. It might be a bad thing. I don't know. I just find it helpful for for me yeah yeah I, lo I love what you've been talking about there mary and, and for our listeners just to pick out some key strands that might help them and you've talked about really knowing your kind of sense of purpose that that then drives you through the ups and downs of of life through the ploppy bits as well as the bits that that are joy uh, and that helps you to keep going you talked about that resilience of keeping going and then yeah just spotting that sometimes and i and i, I would agree with you that that you know, you go for something, it doesn't quite work out. And then you think, oh, this is this, oh, that's annoying. This is frustrating. But then something comes along. If we stop and we look back at our life, don't we? We see a whole series of events that go, well, they, these are all decision junctions in my life that, that that didn't turn out. But actually what came along gave me some great opportunities as a result. So there's that sense of just, and this came through in just you talking about those other bits at the end there. What can I control in this and what can't I? And I can't control how people respond to a situation and it might well be that exactly as you've described they've got a particular person in mind and we just might not be that jigsaw piece that fits that hole but but things do come when we keep working with the right heart towards where we're going and again you were talking again at the end there that actually what can I control in this I can't control if someone is being unkind to me or saying things or pushing back but what you've talked about there is this sense of trying to listen and weigh up and evaluate is there anything I can learn from this situation which again i think for for leaders listening to this we can sometimes view situations can't we as good or bad uh, but actually we just go well this is the situation like a like a gold prospector at the riverside you know by the gold mine let's sift this uh, what are the gold nuggets that stay and what's the crud that drops through and what can i gain from this so i think there's so much richness there mary in in what you've shared so yeah, thank you for that one. Just to just to hear a bit of your story and and how how we can pull from that. Um, I, I was uh, in just looking at on your website for for Myatt and Co. Some fantastic work that you do there to develop and support um, educators across the world, not just uh, in this country. And there's a there's a great phrase on there. Uh, I'm just going to read it, ask it back to you and just ask around your philosophy that drives this. So it says Mary's education philosophy is underpinned by several principles that all children deserve rich, demanding work, uh, that high quality talk underpins learning, that human beings are curious and that they find deep work very satisfying. I mean, that really should be the heart of every piece of education, whether that's a child or an adult, isn't it? But what for you drives that philosophy? Oh, I, I think there's a number of things going on there that um, I, th I think as a sector, I'm not talking about individuals, I think mm. we need to raise the bar in terms of, on, an, on a number of aspects. Um, so the, the level of intellectual challenge that we offer all our pupils, regardless of their starting points, because there can be a tendency to make things too easy for too many of our children in the mistaken belief they can't cope. Mm. And so both my work, my research, um, uh, drawing on other fields as well, 
Um, so, for example, Dan Willingham's work, professor of psychology at the University of Virginia, um, his work on um, on curiosity and as a driver and a motivator for learning, um, but also that thinking is hard. Thinking is hard, but it's mm. deeply rewarding. Yeah. <laughs> it's deeply rewarding. And Dan gives examples of, you know, you complete a, a crossword or whatever, and it's hard work in the moment, but actually you've got this deep sense of satisfaction when it's done. Mm. Um, and, and my own work with talking to pupils and students is that they relish doing difficult, demanding work as long as the conditions are right. They have to be characterized by high challenge mm. alongside low threat. Yeah, absolutely. And so you, you can't have the high challenge unless you've done some work on the low threat. I've done you know, a lot of writing and, and speaking on that. But my argument is um, based on a number of sources that we're a challenge seeking species, that we like doing things that are difficult. Um, we get deep satisfaction from those, and actually, you know, dopamine plays a, a, a factor in that as well. When we achieve mm. something, we put some effort into that we don't get when things are too easy. Mm. Um, so I think that the, um, the idea that we offer children things with sufficient cognitive challenge uh, is there. And part of that is identifying the big ideas and, and the concepts. Um, but I've got lots of children who've said to me, that, you know, we just love, we love doing this. Um, particularly if the teacher gives them something, flags it up and says, this is supposed to be hard. So don't worry <laughs> if you can't do it because we're going to talk about it later. Yeah. Kind of releases them to have a go. And so, um, and this is particularly important for children who are perceived to be low prior attaining pupils and students or poorer yeah. readers. All right. So I can give an example if that's helpful in terms of the difference that this can make. Yeah, yeah, do, do please. So there's a nice piece of work that came out of Sussex University a few years ago um, called the Faster Reading Research. So this is Joe Westbrook and Julia Sutherland's work um, at, at the university. And it was a, quite a small trial um, with schools um, where in English, they selected two novels for year eight students that were at least a year above what the pupils would normally be studying. And that's all they did. They read them for 12 weeks. That's all they did. Radical. We read in English lessons. And um, uh, so it wasn't a huge trial, 365 year rates. At the end of the trial, they found that the reading scores for the whole cohort had gone up by eight and a half months. What did they find for the children who'd been identified as poorer readers? Well, it was almost double. Mm. 16 months progress in that 12, 12 week period in, the, in terms of their reading ages. Now we can pick holes in various pieces of research, but this is increasingly being replicated elsewhere, including in primary great work by Gail Fletcher and Lauren Haynes in Cheltenham. But I think um, what's interesting when they spoke to the pupils about, particularly those poorer, the ones who've been identified as poorer readers, what they thought was going on, why they'd done so well, they said, well, we don't normally get the chance to do this interesting work. So what's the diet for a lot of our children, particularly those who are identified as being behind, is they get a diet of phonics, decoding, spag and leveled readers, all of which are necessary, hmm. but they're not sufficient. Um, and so they went on and said, we didn't need to understand every word because we could talk about it, but we wanted to find out what happened next. Their curiosity hmm. had been provoked. And so you've got a lot going on there. When we provoke children's curiosity, it's a huge driver for learning. Yeah. Um, and then when they spoke to the teachers about what they thought was going on, for the most part, they were surprised. They had thought they couldn't cope. And so I think we've got to be prepared to be surprised, to offer children rich stuff, um, and then support them to get there through that hard bit until they're in, in the flow. Because if we don't, then we end up with children with a diminished diet, particularly those with low prior attainment. Um, and then we wonder why the gaps aren't closing. So there's a lot sitting in there in terms of uh, appropriate challenge for all pupils. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. And I'm just, as I'm listening to you talk there, I mean, obviously there's a, a number of our, our listeners and watchers to this, you know, come from an education background, but there's also some that come from business and charity and coaches. And, and I was just listening there with intrigue about, you know some of the importance of of what you've got in there around around that around us being curious but but 
you talked, you know, your work around uh, high challenge, low threats, uh, and we talk in coaching about it's so important that, that someone feels safe uh, I, within our workplace. If we want people to attain well, uh, again, they need to feel safe. So it is about creating that space of safety, wh whether this is children, whether it's adults. And then this sense of challenge, you know, as I was hearing you talking about the difference this is making to children, but I think it's the same for, for adults in workplaces. It's the same for our staff. It's there, if there is this sense that, that we're, you know, giving them the challenge bit. And, and I was just kind of reminded of, as you were describing this story, it's almost like you watch sports teams where there's a real struggle to win. You know, it's, it's, it's one all and they're battling, battling, and then somebody, you know, manages to to score the next goal or whatever. And the sense of elation for people in that moment seems always far greater than, than when they just win 5-0 um, because the, it's the struggle and the fight, isn't it, that's brought it to it. So I, I think you're right. I think it is, is part of our human nature uh, as, as part of that. Are there any core values that, that, that for you drive that philosophy that you've just talked about? Well, it's, it's quite a quirky one really i mean one of my main core values is hospitality and what i mean by that is i want to make anyone who comes into my space makes it sound a bit artificial as i'm describing it this is kind of a mental mental yeah. positioning that i am yeah, sounds, yeah. A bit, sounds a bit twee as i try to describe it but um i want them to feel welcome and and i talk a lot about this in you know, in relation to schools as well, is that that sense of deep hospitality? Mm. Um, is everyone who crosses the threshold of that setting are they made to feel welcome? Mm. Not just the not these not just these ones ones who are easy to get onto the awkward squad as well and their mm. parents. Mm. Does everyone feel welcome in my classroom? Now I don't need to proclaim, you know, my arms open, come in, <laughs> you're welcome. But it's through my demeanour. Yeah. And occasionally I will say, well, <laughs> uh, but I'm not going to make a big thing of it. But what I'm intending to do, this is about an intentional thing. I want people to feel uh, that there's going to be some interesting stuff as they engage with me. If they're bored, I hope they tell me. Mm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I don't want this to be, you know, all, all hunky-dory and uh, motherhood and apple pie. But I want people to feel that sense of hospitality. And what also follows from that, and this doesn't always work, I want anyone who's had a conversation with me to feel better about themselves. Hmm. This makes me sound terribly worthy, but it's not meant to. <laughs> but, but, I mean, that's so key. Uh, just, yeah, like you said, it's quirky, but it's not, is it? It's that hospitality, that sense of welcome, that sense of this is a space where you're welcomed and, and valued. And again, as I was listening to you there, I was just reminded of the kind of coach's key phrase of unconditional positive regards, that when you coach somebody, there's this unconditional uh, belief that there is, uh, you have it within you uh, as part of that process. Um, and yeah, I think I think that overlaps with, with what you're talking about there. You're welcome and I believe in you. Uh, and when you give off this sense of creating this environment, that's what creates the safety uh, for people then to feel safe to be curious and experiment, whether that's a, a five-year-old, a 15-year-old or a 55-year-old at work. If you can create this safe space for them, then, then they can be curious and can explore. Um, yeah, so, so I love that. I love that. I think one of the things that's coming across both as I talk to you, Mary, but also as I read your your some of the, the books that I've read of you, as I've heard you speak, is this this sense from you of authenticity. Uh, you're really open and you're honest. And, and I love that when I, when I've read it in your writing uh, and, and heard you. There's this sense for me as well that you you cut through some of the nonsense and bring it back to sensible and authentic truths. But I've loved the way you've done it. You, you, you come across to me of doing it with such grace. Now you're chuckling away, maybe like Colin, what picture are you painting of me? But they, this, is, this is how you come across to me. Uh, some people can cut through the, to get to the sensible, authentic truth by being quite blunt. Uh, and uh, you, know, you, you have seemed to have this way of being able to to do that directly, but but with grace. Um, so I just wonder how you manage that, particularly with some of our government and educational nonsense and noise that we have. What's your advice for people on how you can just get back to that authentic stuff that we, you know, you were just talking about there? Any top tips for our, our listeners? 
it, it's interesting that you, you you remark on that because other other people do as well. I mean, I don't work too hard at it, but I just I just have a very sharpened sense of the absurd, and so I call it out. But uh, Tom Tom Sherrington is really funny on this. He says, well, "I don't think there's anyone who can quite whip up the moral indignation that you managed to construct, um, and yet still bring people with you." And I think part of that's because it's never personal. I mean, we are all doing the best we can with the yeah. resources that we have in the time available. Nobody's setting yeah. out to do a rubbish job. However, you know, I think there are quite a few things that are redundant in processes within the sector. Mm. And so uh, I'm not trying to change anyone's behavior. I'm just saying that is a bit potty. Why are we doing it? <laughs> you know, and I have my hit list of things that I think really do need to be facing a firing squad. So things like, you know, preparing half a dozen differentiated coloured worksheets that are going to widen gaps. You know, if I'm in a school where if it moves, I have to mark it. Um, if I'm in a school where I'm having to put in dotty data every two minutes, you know, we need to be calling some of this stuff out. And so it's never personal. But what I'm trying to do is encourage anyone at any phase of their career to ask why. Yeah. And so because uh, we can do this through a lens of careful curiosity and um honest skepticism which mm. is distinct from cynicism yeah um, and, and john talks at i've unpacked that quite a lot in our in our work on the conversations uh for the hurt series on 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 the curriculum that this isn't about an aggressive why it's just like well i'm not sure why this isn't can you just walk me through where this is going who needs this set of data, just as I can understand. Now, I know my head is potty, but I'm yeah. coming this from a place of um, uh, made-up ignorance. So can you talk me through where this is going? Yeah. If, if someone can, fine. But mostly, it's just like, well, we've always done it that way, and that's how the governors want it. They want this junk data, or we think Ofsted need it. Ofsted don't need it, so stop doing it. Um, and so, but also what I try to do is I, I am quite intentional about raising this notion of um manufactured indignation because i do think it's wrong but then what i always then so i'm building people up to a pitch and then i'm saying well, it's all very well me having a grizzle and a grumble about that if i don't suggest what might be done about it mm. uh which you can which you can critique you can and so if we are if i'm um you know calling out some of the poor quality resources that land on children's desks filling in dodgy worksheets and, you know, some of it is frightful. Well, I think our children deserve more. And if this is the best we can offer, well, that's fine if we can justify it. Um, and I don't blame people for downloading really poor quality resources if they've not been given the time, if they're working till midnight to prepare those differentiated kind of worksheets that are gonna widen gaps, of course, they're gonna to turn to some of this frightful stuff. But why would I, if I knew, that there were some wonderful websites that are going to produce really meaningful, thoughtful resources for children. They look lovely because I don't think we pay enough attention to the visual quality of what we offer children. Mm. Um, they're written or prepared in a tone that doesn't patronize them. They've got some really interesting vocabulary. So what I do then is I then signpost them to these, to the place that's on my website under resources, they're all free to download marymark.com under resources. And for each of those subjects, um, there's a summary commentary from the National Curriculum, but then there are these resources. So what I try to do is say, if it's not if it's not good enough and we agree it's not good enough, I'm not going to leave it there. I'm going to say these might be some starting points that would help you. So I never want to leave people feeling bad. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, uh, again, what I love about what you've talked to, there are a couple of key phrases and I've just I've written these down. Caring curiosity and a help, helpful scepticism, uh, which you said is clearly different to cynicism. So caring curiosity and helpful scepticism. So again, anyone listening to this to think about how do I cut through whichever sector they might be in, where I see stuff that I just think is a little bit bonkers. And, it, and it's not just education, there's so many things in our world, the very sectors that I kind of work in, and I come across and I go, really? <laughs> what, what are we doing that for? Um, and just you, and I, I love the fact that you described it as caring curiosity. So it comes back to that curiosity again, just to be curious, what, yeah, why is it we're doing this? What is it about this that's important? 
and what what impact is this having so to be curious but to do it with care because actually as you said nobody's going about this to deliberately do it wrong it's just the experiences they're having isn't it um, yeah, so and I fantastic. think when you look at it through that lens of careful curiosity, you're also putting it in a space where you can have some observations that make you understand why that's the case. Yes. Which is fine. It's just that there's quite a lot of stuff that happens that is not, not adding value to children's learning. So for me, the lens is, is this what we're expected to do? Is it making a difference to children's learning? If it's mm -hmm. not, then can someone walk me through why it's needed? And I'm always prepared to be persuaded, but yeah. quite often there isn't a proper justification. It's through that gentle probing um, that we that we actually shift practice. And one of the things I'm always encouraging people to do: you don't need to be, you don't need to think you've got any status in a school to do this. You can you can have arrived as you know a trainee and just start. Oh, so tell me why that happens. You know, yeah. this kind of playful way. And it starts, it just starts opening up great conversations about why we do stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah, from what you're saying, just start with questions rather than, than statements, isn't it? And just, it comes back to that curiosity, ask questions to find that out. So whatever sector people are, are coming from and listening to this, uh, that's a key way you can do that. Mary, you mentioned just now about kind of the resources you then signpost them to. Uh, and so you created Myat & Co., um, what was the vision behind that? Was it was it just as you've described there to be offering them something that's a better diet? Um, well, yeah, what's sort of behind it? Right. So those resources I mentioned just now, they're on uh, my main one of my website, marymart.com, where everything is is freely available. I'm just trying to share what I think is interesting uh, stuff on there yeah. and help people to have the headlines in quite a quick way. In terms of the Martin Co platform, um, what I was finding was that I was being asked to support work in schools that I just couldn't find the time to do. Mm. So I needed to find a way of scaling that but also making it um, realistic in terms of, I wanted to keep the cost as low as possible, basically. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, the principles behind that, uh, so we started it in October 20, um, having had the idea in June, so we moved pretty quickly on it. It meant setting up a completely new platform. It's kind of Netflix model. Um, and since uh, October 20 and we're speaking in July 2022 so you know not quite two years um, we've got 14,000 people using it um, we've got 500 recordings including yours Colin <laughs> uh, which are which are great and then also um, uh, we've got about 60 or 70 contributors so what I then decided to do I didn't want it just to be me because I think I'm boring but also I want to give a platform to other people so that you're amplifying others voices as well and you know in and in many respects growing the next generation of thinkers uh you know I really love encouraging uh youngsters um and so it's this lovely mix um and so some of it's always free because I believe in the principle of just oh, this you just I just want to get out there but mm. the rest of it is behind um a low a low subscription model and most schools and multi-academy trust us by uh, a bulk number and it brings it right down to you know a five or a month or something yeah and so that's what I was trying to do it was really anything I do is in response to a need so I'm thinking is there a way that I can realistically make this work that is going to solve what people are asking me um, and in a way that can wash its face um, so yeah that's the reason behind Martin Co. Yeah that's brilliant again just what do people need to help them within this education sector uh, and I love the way that you've yeah you've just championed others as part of that as as well um, and I can see that in the way you you operate wider than just Martin Co. Uh, and, and at the root of that then sits the, the, the kind of heart and character that you have. And certainly the work I do with people around leadership, the importance of that, uh, your heart living, living for others um, and your character. So how, how, do you, how do you view that whole thing around us, uh, your heart and your character, both for you, but also, you know, if we're talking wider in leadership, how important is it to have a heart for others and a character where we look to do the right thing, even if we can get away with doing the wrong thing. Mm. So I think, I think it's not entirely altruistic and I don't think that heart thing should be. I think we've got to look after ourselves as well. Mm. So, uh, and I really do mean that from a deep space. So, you know, I want to take deep pleasure, deep satisfaction from the work that I do. 
uh, I'm in an lucky position. If I don't like the look of something, I say, oh, terribly sorry, I'm too busy. <laughs> but I think, uh, I think, yeah, it's not, I would I'd be very reluctant for it to come across as though it's um, a, in a very do-goody way. This is about a really rich interaction with other people, which starts with ourselves. So actually, mm. just to be quite forgiving of ourselves, uh, be able to love ourselves and not take ourselves too seriously. So we're in a sort of solid, grounded place. Fundamentally, we don't think we've got all the answers. Uh, even, even if in some respects we do have the answer to something, yeah. never, never to come up with it initially. You've got to give people a space to articulate something for themselves. So I, I've done a lot of work around the provisional language we use, even though we're fairly sure we know the answer. Mm. And so it seems to me that this was what's happening or this is what's going on. I know perfectly well what has been happening, <laughs> but I want to give that person the space to tell me because I could, I could be wrong. Yeah. And so it seems to me, or I noticed that when this happened, this appeared to be the consequence. So what, what do you reckon? So it's always provisional rather than directive, in my humble opinion. I mean, I'm not trained in this. It's just stuff that I've, I've noticed actually gets the best out of, out of uh, people. And so when you're asking me about, you know, that, that those aspects of leadership, to me, they're fully integrated with the individual who's considering yeah. themselves the leader in inverted commas and those they're interacting with. It's not, it's, you know, all these threads go both, both ways. Yeah, yeah. And, and just hearing you there, it's again, curiosity is coming through. So you're using that in the way that you operate. But I also I just note in what you're saying there, one of the things that builds trust with people is that you have an expertise, but it's the way you yield it. It's the way you use it. Uh, and, and just the way you described there that you, you know some stuff, but you're not just telling them, look, this isn't working because you're not doing this. You're just saying, I've noticed this. And you engage them in that process. So you have that knowledge, but you're not using it to beat them with. You're using it to lift them up. Again, some of the training we do is about, you know, good leaders. And actually, it's about good human beings. Lift people up, not push them down. And mm -hmm. in doing so, you ironically elevate yourself because, because you, you are bringing people up, um, people that squash people down. Um, you know, you're no higher. It's just you push people a bit, bit lower. Um, yeah, and that, that comes from a, a, a place of deficit rather than a place of, you know, I have enough. Mm. Uh, why would anyone want to put someone else down? But I tell you where, I, in terms of that provisional language, I kind of honed that when I was a pastoral lead uh, for year year 11s. When, and they were right, roughy, tufty crew. I mean, I love them to bits. <laughs> I was always having to sort out the... What they got up to and and negotiating with the teacher or member of staff that they had seriously made cross. Yeah. And making that work so that so that relationships were healed, not so that they were perfect, but they so you could start again, you know, when they went back in. Yeah. Anyway, I loved all that. I mean, it took up an awful lot of time, but th there would be the odd occasion where something had happened. And I knew, I knew about 80 or 90 percent because I'd got the witnesses. And I used to say to the say to the ones I'd have hauled in my office, try to keep a straight face. <laughs> I used to find it all so funny. And yeah. um, I say, now listen, you're not going to give me a straight account. So this is what I understand happened. But I might have got it wrong. So just stop me the bit I've got wrong. And they always fell into it. I get to the end and they say, yes, it's Mike, we agree with you. And so if I'd have said to them this, this, this and this, they'd have just denied it. But if you mm. give them that space to say, and I think I've got this right. In fact, I hadn't got it all right. I was just joining some dots and I figured out what had happened. <laughs> it turned out I was right. But kind of everyone's honour was respected yeah. because they don't up to it. So, so then we had to talk about what the consequences were. Um, so so I've, used, I've thought about that a lot and thinking um, people don't like to be put on the spot. And also mm. deep down, we know we've done wrong. We just want a space to actually kind of thrash that out. Yeah. And there will be consequences, but actually they have to be entered into fairly on both sides. Yeah, and what you're talking about there is creating a safe space for people to explore it because because you're engaging them in the process and that's the second part you're doing it with them not not to them and whether this is a group of uh, spiky year 11s or actually whether this is a 
a colleague that maybe has uh, made a mistake or, or not quite dealt with something properly, you know, both elements need to be part of that. It comes back again to some of the core things you talk about, about that sense of, of low threat, this sense here where it's safe to explore this, comes back again to curiosity that you're using that wisely as part of that approach. Um, we kind of talked about working with people there. In that case, your example there was about some spiky year 11s. Uh, but yeah, I just wonder now, now you're not uh, working day in, day out with year 11s, but you, you will have colleagues that you work with. You'll have uh, partner people and organizations that you, you, you kind of connect with and partner with to, to deliver that. Just talk to me about how you work with colleagues and with partners. Uh, what's, what for you is the most important thing to consider when you're leading people? So in terms of, I, I don't have kind of formal partners. Uh, I, uh, you know, I'll be in contact with an organization or they'll be in contact with me mm. and I'll say, oh, I'd like to feature this or I'd like to include it in the references that I give as examples. So one would be Lifter. L-Y-F-T-A, that's sort of Ferret's work. Wonderful, wonderful world-class documentaries about individuals and people from around the world. Really, really sensitive. It's all the deep EDI stuff without being heavy-handed before. You know, mm -hmm. they've been doing it is just exquisite. So if I'm talking about a school's intent for their curriculum or the vision and values they have, part of doing that is saying, well, what might some of our children be missing? Um, so some children might be missing um, ex exposure and experience of people who are different from themselves for geographical reasons or whatever. So I can say, right, you might want to look at Lifter. So I'm looking for, and it's never commercial, I just amplify things I think are going to help schools, but are they, are they beautifully produced? Are they coming from a deep human space? And are they going to challenge and, and make children think and then again learn more. So it's that sort of thing that I look for. Um, and in terms of, I don't technically employ anyone. So um, people are invited or sometimes they contact us to be mm. recorded on the Martin Co site. Um, but I have a number of collaborators that do work with me. Mm. And so- sort of associates. They're kind of associates, yes. Mm. And um, so we, we did set up some um, MOs, uh, modus operandi, when we were when we set up Martin Co. I'll just I'll just give you I'll just give you some of the, the headlines from that. And so you know our, our strap line is talking with you, not at you. Mm -hmm. right, so all the materials that you're you're invited to enter into a conversation rather than getting people just reading PowerPoints bullets. There's a place for that, but not, not here. And, it's too much. and so the, the first point is we're inclusive. This means in terms of the range of material we offer, the parts of the sector we draw on, and the way we encourage people to find their voice. Our second one is we settle invoices on receipt. I think that's really important. The next time I'm, I'm, I, I'm and um, I, I think there should be more of that. Uh, you know, the money's, the money's either there or it's not there, so you better pay. We are courteous and principled in all our interactions. We work to find the slickest, most efficient ways of producing material, working with colleagues and sharing the knowledge. We look for the best and we're prepared to be surprised. We have no deadlines. I'm very lucky to be in a position to say that, but we don't have any deadlines. Anyone who works with us does so to pace and scale that works for them. And we find joy in everything we engage in. So that's the kind of working document that gives you a kind of um, sets the scene of the vibe that we're trying to create. And we, we do have an absolute blast, but we, we tackle some difficult stuff as well. Um, yeah. And and uh, anyway, so those are the principles on which I, um, you know, I set out and then people can engage in those and then they do some work, which yeah. we have additional, they suggest, yeah. Yeah. So what, what I love about what you're talking about there is this sense of, first of all finding real connection so when you talked about those people you partner with it's coming we're coming from the same place uh there's a real good venn diagram intersection in in kind of who you work with it's about that again that shared sense of purpose uh the purpose that you talked about right early on in the conversation and then what you've explained in just those lists list of you know key things that when you're working together for for myat and co the, the, these are things we're going to work to. So do you want to sign up to these? And it's, again, being really clear on your expectation and 
getting engagement with that and it, you know if you if you want to engage in this way great join us if, if this isn't going to work for you then maybe we're not the ones to kind of work work together isn't it so it's that sense of clarity you've you've brought to that which is key um i just wonder over your years uh working within schools as well and um, what about those people that are more challenging i think that's one of the things in in, when I work with leaders, it's one of the things they find most difficult is how they manage the person that's that's more challenging. Uh, you've talked, in some ways, you've touched on this already when you've talked about the love that you have for the spiky year 11s. Uh, but yeah, what, what are your perhaps tips in some ways for people listening about how to manage and work with members of your team that perhaps feel a bit more challenging? Okay, so I think um, two things can be driving that. One is... Um, is people not doing, um, not feeling up to their, what, what, what's expected of them and that coming out in ways that uh, can seem uh, negative or downright, you know, pushback on it. Hmm. Um, so I'm, I think it's really important to unpick what those might be. We don't do it directly, but we, you know, opening up conversations about what, you know, how life is for them, um, how, you know, I, you know, I think early on, when, for instance, I'm thinking what some leaders do is they sit down and they, on a regular basis, talk with their teams about where they see themselves in five years, not in terms of this is exactly what I want to do, but actually just generally. Uh, so that, and then how, so, so I think once people feel supported, that can make a, a big difference. Um, I think particularly when we're trying to move people onto a, um, a more effective and more efficient way, of working to have greater impact on, on children's learning. Um, so the people who've always done it one way and don't want to move uh, onto a new one, um, I think that can sometimes be a, a lack of security, you know, insecurity, what might this mm. look like? So it's that iterative conversational process again, but being prepared to say, you know, this might not be the right way. So what's your view on it? Now, I think it's one thing when people are downright rude, you know, personally rude. There's no place for that. And so when that happens, you know, just say, I've got a whole fire here, you know, take five minutes and we come back to this tomorrow because it mm. must never, ever get personal, ever. I mean, sometimes it does, that's human nature, but actually we have to, we have to pause it there yeah. and regroup. But when we're talking about professional disagreements, which don't have that level of personal animus between yeah. the two, um, when it is a professional thing, then it's unpicking the reasons why and being prepared to say, well, we, we might not be right on this, you know, from my perspective, so I'm interested mm. to hear yours. So there's a lot of work that's been done that when people feel their voices are being heard and taken seriously, there's much greater buy-in both to the individual and to the organisation, but also that the, there's also, when it's done well, there's a greater acceptance of what the final decision or mm. way of working is, mm. even if it's not what they wanted. And it's not we're trying to con people because this has been a truly negotiated piece of work, which is why you can't rush it. But equally, you can't drag your feet either. Yeah. Um, but what I've what I found is that there's usually a reason behind the resistance. And and I can't solve that. I'm not there as a healer. I'm there as a, my first obligation is to the uh, pupils and students that I'm, you know, there <laughs> to help their learning. And so we need to have some conversations about why there might be better ways of doing it. And I'm open to your criticism and critique because if we critique the ideas but never the person okay because the, the ideas don't have feelings as we as human beings do and yeah. so you know, all that distancing stuff I believe is so important whether we're dealing with people who are on board or people have been challenging and quite often those poor challenging conversations they they're a forcing function to to really dig deep into justifying the rationale and being prepared to change your minds because they can be really helpful. You don't want everyone yeah. agreeing with you the whole time. You know, I really like the awkward squad. They make yeah. me think. And, they, yeah. and, I do, and I do change my mind. So um, I hope that's helpful. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And I, again, what I'm hearing from you there is this, this sense of really knowing and understanding the person, trying to, to work around this sense of empathy. Where are they coming from here? Uh, I love, again, the, the, the real sense of partnering, authentic partnering you're talking about here. And, and you said when we do that, we then get more acceptance about whatever decision it is going forward. Uh, this sense of recognising as leaders, we might not have it right ourselves either. So actually by asking questions, being curious with them, partnering with them, we should hopefully with that discussion end up with a best solution actually for, for both parties, isn't it? 
so again, some really key strands coming through that you've mentioned before, this sense of authentic uh, curiosity, questioning, um, but there is a sense, as you say, where there's some some really clear and obvious inappropriate behaviours, such as where it's being you know personal or rude, that we have to to press pause uh, to come back and and hopefully then start engaging with people people's frontal lobe rather than than their amygdala because when they're in that section you don't get any any resolution, do you? Um, I mean, uh, Mary, it's fascinating chatting today, and uh, and our time is is drawing to a close, uh, and so I just want to just explore with you um one last bit and then then perhaps maybe top top tips for for leaders listening here in just in terms of how to to work with people lead people and and lead uh, a vision to fruition but just before we look at your top three tips just this sense of wider contribution uh as a leader that you know again looking on your website in terms of it's not just been about your particular projects. You've you've looked to develop the wider influence, like co-founding your the RE Quality Mark, um, the, the chair of the board for the Centre of Education and Youth, a member of the Curriculum Advisory Group for Oak National Academy. You, you've you've wanted to make a difference to wider, and I just wonder what what's kind of driven that that wider wider contribution you've looked to bring. Um, well, as you describe it, I know it's written on my website, it makes it sound as though I have a plan. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's and it's not, I think you need principles and you need plans yeah. in the sh short term, but over planning in the long term. Is like, and I was doing a conference a few months or so ago and uh, someone was reading this out. He said, that's an awful lot of stuff. And I said, yeah, it's because I've been around a long time. I'm ancient, you know. And so if you've been around long and I just say yes to interesting things. In terms of the R equality, Mark, I, I um, co-created that with um, my wonderful colleague, Jane Brooke, because there was the arts mark, there was the primary science mark, yeah. It wasn't one for RE, yeah. and we were both RE specialists. So we were very lucky. Well, we bustled about. We got some funding. We, it was it was fantastic, and we ran that for five years. Uh, that was always the intention. I think it took another year to hand it over. That's now part of the Religious Education Council um, mm. under the aegis of Linda Rudge, which is great. And so again, that's driven by spotting a need. Well, why isn't there one for RE? So that we went about getting one. That was lovely. In terms of the others, um, yeah, I was just invited to become involved in those. And the two things I ask myself, is this interesting? And can I, can I make, it sounds a bit worthy, can I make a difference? Have I got anything mm. to add of value here? Mm. And so those are, those are the only things. But I've never set out to intentionally drive the wider landscape. But I think what's happened is that because of the stuff I've written and spoken about, you know, people said, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if she might <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. and, and of course all that of that is pro bono and but it's it's very interesting and so I'm happy to do it but you know I do limit it to the ones where I think it's going to add the greatest value both my work with them and then interest for me yeah that's brilliant and again some key principles for if someone's thinking do I get involved in this I've been invited into a project do I get involved and just your key drivers is this interesting and will I will I be able to bring value or add to it uh, and if if the answer to those questions is yes, then for our listeners, maybe that's something to get involved in. And as you say, it's not necessarily a plan that you had. It's about principles that that drive it. And it's, again, interesting hearing about, oh, yeah, shall I do uh, curiosity drove it again for you as a key part of that within leadership. So, Mary, it's it's been absolutely fascinating uh, and lovely to, for you to give your time both to me and to our listeners. So I really want to thank you for that. We always end our podcast with our top three uh, tips or tips for leadership. Uh, so, yeah, have you got up to three tips that you would want our listeners to kind of reflect on in terms of leading themselves and le leading others? What would what would be the wise words of Mary for our listeners? Well, I'm going to quote uh, someone else first of all, and that's Sir John Timpson, uh, he of the he of the shoe repairers and key mm -hmm. crushing, and he talks about up, upside down leadership, uh, and I, that exactly resonates with me. So you trust people, you expect the best, and you bustle about insofar as you can. But what I what particularly impresses me is that um, they just have re basically a couple of principles. Mm. anyone who's working in their stores it's like look the part you know and that also means you know keep making sure that the spaces looks the part as well put the money in the till that's it 
I think we could learn quite a bit, you know, mm. keep it simple to some principles, because when we start overloading it with checklists and non-negotiables, pass me the sick bucket, you know, keep it <laughs> people, people know when they're doing their best work and when they're mucking about. And that's what those kind of principles do. Um, the second thing in terms of um, a leadership uh, lodestar or tip or whatever is to recognize the leadership in others as well. Mm. Yeah, so and, and, and that also follows, you know, I've got an obligation to grow others as well. Mm. Uh, again, not in that worthy sense, but just everyone, everyone grows. And mm. then um, the final thing is, is like, give yourself a break because it will be tough. There yeah. are times when it's tough being a leader and it's lonely. So remember to reach out to others. Those would be my three. Oh, Mary, those are fantastic and a great way to just draw a number of threads together from, from today uh, for our listeners in the Leadership Lounge. I just want to thank you uh, again for the time, for your wise words, uh, for sharing a little bit about your story as well, uh, for people to discover more about you. Um, so thank you for joining us today on the Leadership Lounge. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Colin. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners as well on the Leadership Lounge. It's been great. You've joined us this month and we look forward to uh, you joining us next month when we'll have another guest on the Leadership Lounge. Mm-hmm.